Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I am your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. Today, we're in for a real treat, as I have the opportunity to introduce you to a dear friend of mine. She's a registered nurse and prolific author whose new book was just released July 19th, 2021, on the day we record this show. Before we meet her, I'd like you to visit our website, caremorebebetter.com. You can sign up for our newsletter to be the first to gain access to new episodes and easily browse past content. You'll find full transcripts, suggestions for actions you can take to make a difference where you live, and even make a contribution to support the show. Cassandra Alexander is a registered nurse of 14 years with experience in burn, critical care, transport, and ICU. She lives in the Bay Area and writes paranormal fiction as Cassie Alexander. Her new book is called Year of the Nurse a 2020 pandemic memoir. Cassie, welcome to the show. Hi, Karina. I'm super excited to be here. (laughs) Well, I just plowed through your book this weekend. And I have to say, it is so very real and raw and unfiltered. I found myself feeling like I got to know you better, even through the course of reading it. And I really was transported back to the beginning of our pandemic. But this time, I was experiencing it through your eyes. So tell me, What made you decide to write this book? Well, so as a writer, as somebody who like kind of writes that baseline, I always write about everything all the time. And so as you know, from having read the book, a lot of it is transcripts from journals or emails or tweets that I made contemporaneously with uh, the timeline. And I was pushing back on the idea of doing anything with that until at the end of April, I kind of had a suicidal crisis at work. Basically, all the PTSD from having been an ICU nurse in 2020 caught up with me, and I started crying, and I basically couldn't stop for three weeks, and luckily, I was able to get in touch with my old therapist because my hospital system was unable to provide me with one because they're so packed. So I was paying her out of pocket and she was like, you know, I know you're a writer. You should probably write through some of this. And I pushed back for about a month. And then I was like, no, I think you're right. Let me do it. And then once I started doing it, I, I, I couldn't stop. I just needed to get everything out of me. I needed to feel all the memories that I'd kept buttoned down for the whole time just so I could survive and to kind of put myself back together. So hopefully I can move forward. So that's where it came from is basically it's my therapy book that hopefully other people will enjoy reading. I understand that it it sprung forth from a lot of your efforts. Like as you go through it, you even you include tweets, you include essays that you wrote for a blog, I think it was called Two Nurses. So can you talk a little bit about that blog and how that came to be? Yeah. So, you know, as a nurse, obviously I have like a huge vested interest in public health and I was tired of people coming to the ICU and dying. It was like, you know how grim it was because you read my book, Karina, but like, I feel like the average person has no idea what goes on in the hospital, what goes on in the ICU in particular, and um, what COVID was like in particular infinity, because there weren't any visitors at that time. And so, you know, me and my, my cohort of nurses were out there trying to educate people, trying to tell people, hey, stay home for the holidays. Don't be stupid. Please don't make us have to take care of you. Don't die. And then just sometime 
in the middle of November, the wheels fell off and we and one of my friends decided to create a blog called Tuners is Talking because we just wanted to yell both to each other, yes, <laughs> and to feel heard, but hopefully to also make it interesting enough that people would like sit back and think about like, why is staffing bad at the hospital right now? Why should I stay home? You know, what is it like to die from COVID? What does life support really mean? And so a lot of the entries came from that series of posts where I was just trying to educate people as wildly as I could in an effort to keep them safe. Now, you know, some people could go ahead and say it was all in an effort to keep them safe, but you were among the first to volunteer. You write in the, your book, I think, that you started working on COVID patients on March 14th, which is earlier than a lot of people even started to take the pandemic seriously. So I was hoping you could talk about why you chose to volunteer and what that meant to you. Oh, Trina, it's, I'm a dumbass. <laughs> I wish... I wish I could have some glorious answer for you that I was like, really, I don't know, you know, like nurses have a vested interest in in being performatively tough. I see nurses in particular or emergency department nurses as well. And you want to think that you can handle the worst that comes through the door. And so the easiest way to prove to yourself that you can conquer anything is to get there and try and do it. And, you know, I don't have any children. My in-laws, my parents were all, you know, distanced from us right then. And, and also too, because of my burn training, I'd had really extensive experience being in isolation gear. So I felt like my isolation gear game was going to be really good at the hospital. So I volunteered and I, I lived to regret it in a good way, I guess, because living is great. But yeah, I, I mean, eventually everyone got their turn because we had so many COVID patients that it was inescapable. But yeah, yeah, I, it was not altruism. It was stupidity. Well, uh, I appreciate the effort and I can only imagine what it was like to literally get into that isolation gear and out of it every day. I think you'd even describe the routine that you had when you got home so as not to infect Paul, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that well. was a scary thing. You know, you know how it always is where it's easier to like help other people than it is to help yourself so often. That was the probably the scariest thing is just I wasn't so worried about what would happen to me if I got COVID, although I I was appropriately afraid of it. And I did not want to get it at all. But I was more so afraid of what would happen to Paul if he got it, you know, so I pretty much kept my my husband at home like a bubble boy. And and he was fine with that because he knew I had his best interest at heart. So yeah. Now the year of the nurse is quite the departure from your earlier works in paranormal and erotic fiction. So I think I, in fact, remember you talking about A.D. Spence series, that entire series as being part of the way you coped with a lot of long nights working alone and also just the stress of having to, you know, clean people's wounds. I'm sure it wasn't always fun. I would just like to hear you talk a little bit about the choice to go from a fiction, a world of fiction into this one. He really went straight for the jugular. So I'd just love to hear more about that. <laughs> Well, the only way that people will believe this book, I feel like, is if I was brutally honest. Somebody on Twitter the other day um, who'd been reading my tweets all along and who, who bought a copy of the book was just like, I appreciate your grotesque honesty. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of putting it because I don't always say things that are pretty, but they are always true. And so I let everybody know exactly what it was like to be me at the hospital last year. And that's what people need to see is the unfiltered truth. 
So this isn't creative nonfiction. I didn't sit around and think about how to make things nicer or prettier. If you were to go back and look at my author newsletters or my tweet timeline, you would see that these are the actual events that took place to me. When I started writing with an aim towards publication a long time ago, the things that interested me at the time were, you know, epic fantasy, science fiction, that sort of stuff. You can see over here, I've got my our, our Mission to Mars movie poster over there in the corner. And so those were the tools that I had at hand to express myself originally when I started as a nurse. And I still do enjoy that. I write paranormal romance, both as Cassie Alexander and then with a friend under the codename Cassie Lockhart. And, and I'm still writing those. And I do believe that things that are softer and more romantic have a place in the world because it's important to have reasons to feel good and have some escapism, like escapism is value. But you're the nurse just needed to be like straight up, tell it as it is history. So that's kind of why that hard line is there. And so Hopefully, I will never have cause to write anything like it ever again, if we can figure our shit out. So how has being so frank affected you and those around you, those that are close to you? Well, it's so funny, Karina. We visited my father-in-law um, yesterday, and he gave me the sweetest card because he actually read my book. And I, he's my only family member who's actually read the book because... As you know from having read it, one of the subthreads in it is my interactions with my family who are Republican and who chose not to really believe what was going down so much so that my mom wound up getting COVID, even though she has a nurse for a daughter. So existential crisis time. So I haven't really talked to them about this book at all. I'm not really interested in having that conversation with them because I don't think all either of us will enjoy it. And then my husband, Paul, you, you know him. So he opted not to read the book because he got to see the play, as he put it, <laughs> because he was here with me every day trying to keep me in one piece and it was kind of hard for him. And so he doesn't really want to go back and like relive that time. But as far as my friend group though, like, I mean, you and, you know, our shared friends, everybody took COVID so appropriately seriously. And that really gave me a lot of hope for the world. And it made my heart feel good that there were people out there who were treating it like the danger that it was and making sure that their family stayed safe and that everyone around them, everybody I, I, who's like my close personal friend was great about masks. I never had to worry about going on Instagram and seeing people being stupid. It was fantastic. So I don't want to say that it's tightened my relationship with my friends, but I just, it's only increased my ongoing respect and love for them. You actually write quite a bit about friendship in the book, too. And um, one of the things that you talk about tackling is post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the friends you have ultimately being there to support you, but also not necessarily always knowing what they should do or need to do to support you. So I'd just like for you to tell our audience about the challenges you faced as you encounter this, um, whether it was from trying to get the right care that you would need, uh, or just trying to help people understand your perspective and where you were coming from? I, I think just the most important thing for anybody who's suffering from PTSD is to have their stories honored and believed. Because for me, at least, that was one of the big things that caused my PTSD was the cognitive dissonance of seeing horrors in the hospital and then hearing, you know, the world not give a shit while people died. And, you know, and, and so while I don't want to ever traumatize anybody by telling them brutal truths necessarily, I don't want to give anybody else damage by, you know, giving them PTSD, so to speak, by being too honest. 
but the people who do have the capability um, and the wherewithal to, to listen to your friends as they express their trauma and to not shut them down and to acknowledge that it's real and that those events did happen to them, even if you don't necessarily have any firsthand or personal experience with that sort of thing, that, that means the world. Just knowing that people are willing to trust the experiences that you went through as you lived them. And, and that was probably the most helpful thing. Not feeling so alone, I guess, is what you can really boil that down to, Karina, you know? So commiseration without judgment. Yeah, yeah, because the whole experience felt so lonely just because it had to be to some degree because I isolated myself from the world. I didn't want to give anybody else COVID. I knew I was interacting with people who had it. And and so, and sometimes it's just hard to want to go there with people. At the same time, I think one of the things I said in the book was interacting with normal people, civilians, so to speak, it was kind of like getting letters from home. And that, that element was really good too. I think, because you don't want to be a pariah. Being a pariah is not good for your mental health. And so having somebody who is willing to talk to you about their childcare issues or like they need to get laundry done and stuff like that, it can kind of re-help ground you in humanity when you are having to see and do very inhumane things. I mean, I can only speak from my own personal experience that year. And I will say that it was hard not having the ability to just reach out to my friends and have a big hug. The extrovert in me suffered for not being able to have that kind of connection. And I honestly think was a good part of the reason that I actually started this podcast in the first place, because it enabled me to connect with people in a different way and a deeper fashion than I might otherwise in a quick phone call. Putting my own good out into the world through a podcast and connecting with people in a real way. I mean, it's just so valuable to hear, you know, how they're experiencing life. Now, um, the title of the book, The Year of the Nurse, and the style in which it's written are quite disruptive a little unexpected. So I was hoping you could talk about the stylistic choices you made, even down to the title. Yeah, so so I called it Year of the Nurse because with heavy irony, the World Health Organization actually designated 2020 as the Year of the Nurse, I think because it was like Florence Nightingale's 200th birthday or something. And so I, at least my break room, but I have a feeling many other break rooms in hospitals across America had posters from the World Health Organization saying 2020 year of the nurse and you'd walk through the break room, you'd be sweaty, you'd be like hoping you're not going to die. And then <laughs> you would just see that motto on the wall and you'd be like, yeah, fucking right. So and then 2020 was so bad that 2021 got a mulligan. And so 2021 is still the year of the nurse. So that just seemed like a super appropriate title because the book itself is chronological. So it feeds into that. But then also to anybody who was a nurse last year would understand the subtle jab I'm taking. And then as for the way that it's done, I decided the chronological was the best way to do it, which means it's kind of like an epistolary novel, which is like, like a diary, essentially, except with maybe more ancillary material. And that's just the style of book that's fallen um, out of fashion, but they used to do them a lot in like the 1800s. And in a way, Dracula was an epistolary novel. It had like headlines from newspapers and that sort of thing involved in it. I thought it was a good way to keep people abreast of the situation at work as I was experiencing it with my tweets and with my longer thoughts as I had them like in my journals or my emails or my newsletters. And then I've got that kind of ticker tape of what's happening nationally periodically, because I wanted people to remember everything that had gone down. I've had several people read the book already and come back to me and be like, Oh, my God, I forgot all those things happened. But 
like 2020 was so bad that we blocked a lot of it out. And not that that's not a good thing. I don't want everybody to go back. But like when you read it in your book, you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that collectively we all went through this administration trying to kill us in all these different ways that I enumerate. And then at the back of the book, I don't know if the copy that I sent you had it, but it actually has like a 15 page bibliography. because And it's chronological too, which is really helpful yeah. because if you want to go back, yeah. you can say, okay, well, oh, that was a source. And it's Literally, instead yeah, of being alphabetical, yeah. you've done it chronologically. Yeah, because I wanted everyone to know that I had like proof for every single stupid thing that Trump ever said and, <laughs> you know, bad decisions that the administration made. So, yeah. Yeah, you do talk at length in the book about the politicization of public health. Um, and to put it frankly, as you've said, I mean, it was a really, really bad year in that way. I mean, f- making masks or the mandate for masks, a political issue as opposed to a public health issue, I think served absolutely no one. And it killed a lot of people. Like, let's be frank. Oh, yeah. Spread the disease. You spread the disease to many people who otherwise might not have been infected. And regardless of what their underlying health conditions are, you know, what, over 600,000 people, possibly as much as a million people have have died um, during the pandemic. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk about where you see us right now, because the book takes us through early June or mid-June, I think, uh, which is really not that long ago. And (laughs) whether or not you... It's like, it's very current. (laughs) It should be uh, 2020 to 2021, your listeners. No, I mean, we're we're taping this on like the 19th of July, and I think I wrote my afterward like on July 8th. So that's the immediacy of self-publishing for you. Um, the Yes, unfortunately, we're just splitting into two Americas. And I think anybody who has eyes to see can see that where the people who are vaccinated are doing okay. Maybe they are having to go to the hospital if they get breakthrough COVID, but they're not being hospitalized and they're not getting intubated. Although, unfortunately, it seems like they may still be having long COVID symptoms, which is bullshit. Um, and then the people who keep believing Fox News, which keeps trying for some reason to murder its viewers. And um, yeah, just today, somebody on Fox News was saying it's not the government's job to keep us safe, basically. And that is the actual definition of a government, according to me. Otherwise, why do we have military and why do we have police? So um, yeah, I don't understand what the Republican Party and what Fox News is gaining by murdering civilians, which is essentially what's happening every time they tell somebody not to get vaccinated. I mean, can you imagine having the world's biggest bullhorn and not using it to save lives? Like, it just boggles the mind, or at least it it boggles my mind. And and as long as they keep beating that drum and they're not held accountable, there's just going to be a certain segment of the population who's vulnerable to COVID. And unfortunately, They're the ones who are dying from it right now. And, you know, hospitals in the Midwest are getting slammed. Like, so first off, you know, you know, Karina, we're just all terrifically burnt, right? Like nobody has any room at the end for emotions, compassion, um, for picking up overtime, for, you know, anything anymore. Because last year sucked so hard and everybody needed a breather and we haven't gotten the chance to get that truly. Um, The only reason I've gotten enough of a breather to do this book is basically because I went out on psych leave. I mean, that's not fair to everybody else who's still back there working hard. 
And so right now there's hospitals in Missouri that recently put out SOSs for extra respiratory therapists because they're seeing such a surge. Um, and like all the hospitals in Missouri right now are like being forced, forcibly held open. So um, like when you are so full that you can't take any more patients, you, you basically turn your hospital off and they're supposed to divert everybody around. But then when all the hospitals are too full simultaneously, then everybody has to open back up because there's nowhere to go to take you to save you. And that's what's happening in Missouri right now. So, and yeah, so people are dying, not only because of COVID, but because um, the hospitals are too full to take good care of anybody who comes in through no fault of their own and definitely not through the fault of the staff who are still in the trenches working as hard as they can. So yeah, until we basically turn off Fox News and deplatform liars, we're gonna continue to get bombed. So essentially what you're saying is the fallout still happening. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's the too long. Don't read version. (laughs) Yeah. Too long. Don't read. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, it was a particularly bad year for those working in healthcare and other essential services. In your book, you said something to the effect that they are called essential, even though sacrificial might be a better term. And I mean, it was, that was something I, I had heard before. I had heard people who were working in essential roles saying something to the effect of cheekily, you know, it really feels more like I'm a sacrificial lamb than an essential worker. I'm not being given uh, appropriate materials to protect myself. I have a cloth mask that I made at home that I'm using to work at the grocery store. I don't have gloves any longer because I ran out and I couldn't get any more from the local stores. I mean, just all of those basics that were not necessarily being covered even by people just working at the grocery store. And you're working in a hospital with people who have COVID confirmed and many who don't have COVID confirmed yet. You're waiting test results, but you've seen lung scans showing you markers that say, hey, this person Mm -hmm. has something going on that looks like it very much could be COVID. So I I just like for you to share a little bit about what you think that we can do collectively to improve not only just how people are seen that are working in these roles, but just the access to the tools that you need in an ongoing capacity. So I have several thoughts about that, um, and hopefully I remember them all. There are three thoughts for me. Hopefully I'll get them all. First off, yeah, the people in grocery stores are fucking heroes, and at least when I was at work, I had appropriate gear and I knew who I should be worried about. People who were forced, anybody in customer service during COVID who was forced to be out there amongst the public who may not have cared if they lived or died or, um, you know, blithely assumed they were asymptomatic, even though they might have been, they just weren't experiencing symptoms at the time. Yeah. I feel like grocery store employees were at a higher risk than I was in many ways, because at least people were being careful where I work because I'm sure they saw just as many COVID people as I did. I feel like right now we're seeing this kind of shameful turn in America where it's horrible underbelly is coming to light. A couple months ago, there's all the op-eds about like, oh, we have to turn off unemployment so we can make all those servers go back to work. There's no one working the kitchens and they're getting unemployment pay as opposed to the fact that like they were treated like crap by the nation, just like nurses were for almost a whole year. And you're seeing that now, too, uh, on the airlines, right? Those people who all of a sudden, you know, get up 80,000 feet or 8,000 feet, and then they feel like they have to act out and take off their masks and punch people so that they lose teeth. Come on now. And so 
I am not entirely sure how to stem that tide of vitriol that apparently has just been working in America's veins all along. Um, I just have to kind of loop back to cutting it off at the source, which is to deplatform liars and turn off Fox News um, so that people stop hearing that it is okay to not participate in society and to treat other people poorly, because that's not true. And then as far as protecting other people and essential workers, I think right now, hopefully more people have access to PPE in the United States, but um, a tip well, if you have the opportunity to tip a service person, tip them well, because you appreciate the danger that they put themselves in and, and don't be an asshole, you know? Don't, don't take your mask off. Don't take a swing at people. Nobody needs to hear your bad opinions about vaccines. You just keep it to yourself and, you know, be responsible. Don't move along. That's like 99.99% of customer service people. And I include nurses in that number. That's really all we ask of you. So presently in Santa Cruz County, where I live, there is no mask mandate going inside to grocery stores and other indoor spaces. Yet that is starting to be the recommendation again all over the Bay Area. So I was hoping that you could offer your perspective on what people should do now to protect them, particularly since we have the Delta variant coming loud and proud into California and other places around the United States. Yeah, like basically if you Google long COVID, you should have no interest in ever being exposed to COVID and having lasting detrimental effects from it. Like your lungs are a precious commodity and you want to keep them as healthy as you can moving into old age. Like, and it doesn't matter what year you start off at, you know, nobody should start smoking when they're six. That doesn't make it better because your lungs are younger, right? Um, Everybody should be thinking about how I can maintain my health currently and into old age. And so everybody should just be wearing a mask for a very long time until we somehow really do achieve herd immunity. And when we actually manage to do that, scientists will be blurring it from the rooftops like revelation is at hand. So, um, but that requires that everybody gets on board with the vaccines and we have a high enough uptake of vaccines in a timely fashion to kind of squash Delta and these other variants that are coming along. Right now, personally, I am always going to wear a mask indoor spaces. I don't eat indoors yet. I don't know that I will for quite some time. The only time I hang out maskless is when I'm around friends and I know that we've all been vaccinated and that is about it. And, and that makes me sad, right? Because I, you know, I'm an extrovert. I'm not usually a hermit. I like to go to shows. I like to go to like um, plays and stuff. So this year hasn't been great for me. I haven't been really excited to be living in a cave, but I know that I want my, my body and my brain to be as healthy as I can be going on. I don't want to increase my risk for anything future. I've seen too many scarred lung x-rays right now. I kind of wish that we could do like a, you know, you know, those old tiny drug commercials they had, like, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs and the mm-hmm. cheese with the eggs and stuff, you know, I kind of wish we could do like, these are your lungs and these are your lungs on COVID. And then, you know, even a lay person could tell the noticeable difference of lung scarification. And once your lungs get scarred, those scars may not ever heal because that's just how long tissue works. So yeah, so I don't know why people are so excited to go and breathe other people's air right now. No one's going to give you a medal for not wearing a mask. What are you accomplishing by putting yourself in danger? Literally nothing. So for those that have reintroduced air travel, what are Mm. your thoughts? 
I do have thoughts on this. I'm actually taking a flight on Wednesday. <laughs> I'm getting ready to take one in one week next Wednesday. So maybe we're flying around the same time. I'm going to Portland. I don't know if you are. <laughs> no, not Portland. I don't have uh, N95s at home, but I have KN95s at home, like the next step down. I just am going to put it on and not take it off till I get to where I'm going. I don't need to eat or drink while I'm in the airport. It's fine. You know, luckily for me, it's like, it's going to be like a 90 minute flight. So it's not going to be soul crushing. I have heard good things about the filtration systems that planes have put in. Even in the before times, I wasn't really looking forward to breathing air on airplanes. So I'm certainly not now. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave my, my mask like sealed to my face. And, but it's going to be okay though, because, um, you know, masks work. And especially now that airplanes are still making everyone wear masks, we should be fine. So I have a question for you about the actual writing of the book. Did you enjoy writing it? Did it, satisfy, did it satisfy you the same way as writing fiction? I mean, you said you hope you never have to write one like it again, but. Oh my gosh, Karina, that's such a great question. Um, was it therapeutic to write? Yes. Did I enjoy having to write it? No. Um, it felt good at the time, though. Um, I... I have this saying because I've written so much fiction in my life. You know, when you um, when you finish, when, when you're writing a book, you're kind of spinning a cocoon around yourself. And then when you're done with the book, you break out of the cocoon and you are a different person. Like you've been transformed in, in some way, small or large. And that's why sometimes when um, an editor gives you a note, it's really hard to get back into the book and to make those changes because you're not the same person who wrote that book anymore. And so I feel like this book is very much like that for me. Like even with the mental health that I have now, I would not have been capable of writing the book and collating it and stuff like I did in May and June um, because I'm a more whole person now and my brain is a lot better. I don't think I would have the wherewithal to pick up all the rocks and look underneath them like I did at the time when I was living through my depression and anxiety and PTSD, uh, all of which I still have just to a uh, lesser and more controllable degree now. So yeah, I, I'm glad I'm not the person who wrote the book anymore, but I am proud to have written the book. And I do think that it's necessary for people to read so that they understand what they put nurses through and why we cannot do that to nurses or any anyone again. Well, I made the recommendation that some gals in my book club read it because some of them actually oh, do work in the medical field and others are just like, I, I could use a review of what it was like to be in those shoes. And I think it's a powerful piece because as much as we might have heard in the media or reviewed on Facebook, on videos or whatever, we weren't in your shoes. And I feel like the book does a really yeah. good job of placing the reader in your shoes and understanding what it felt like to be there. Um, you have an analogy in the book, specifically as you're talking about depression that I really resonated with because, um, I mean, I'm also very good at, at uh, putting on the smile and just getting out there and doing even when things are really bad because productive people were generally like that. So they're... Yeah. Uh, I think you said something like uh, when you feel really flat, so flat that you could essentially slide under an airlock door. And mm -hmm. I mean, that just spoke to me in this way that I don't think any other description of depression ever has. And so I wanted to commend you for that. And also just to say that I think it's powerful 
and the analogies that you bring in to talk about these real issues that we face when we are facing the unsurmountable and or what feels like it's unsurmountable. So really Mm -hmm. just artfully done. And thank you for writing it. I know it wasn't easy. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. You know, and I mean, I, I feel bad because, you know, as I said, in the book itself, there were definitely nurses who had it so much worse than I did. Like I live, luckily I'm in the Bay Area. I work in the Bay Area. California as a whole didn't get hit as bad as other places. The Bay Area in particular didn't get hit. So I, I know I know that there were other nurses out there who were like way more in the trenches, who had horrible ratios of like one nurse to nine ICU patients is something that happened in New York, one of our travelers told us. And so I know that people had more stressful circumstances out there. So um, so my experiences, nurse wise may not be everyone's experience, but but I, I know that had that writing history. And so I was like, so who am I to write this book? And I was like, well, I'm a writer and not that many nurses are also writers. And so that's why I felt compelled to step up to the plate because the experience of being a nurse is so different from like the cultural perspective that America has about nurses. And I wanted to really try and bridge that gap. So, well, I felt like I saw COVID through your eyes. It was a little bit of a reliving and I didn't have uh, much that I'd forgotten. So I sometimes <laughs> uh, painfully laughed as I got through it because, oh, yes, I remember this. Yeah, it was quite the journey. And it was really, I think, most surprising to me on completing it that, I mean, really, that was just a year. Maybe it was 15, 16 months that you went through in the book itself. but for the most part, it was a year. And how much and how bad things got in the space of that year was really Mm -hmm. incredible. And so to look back and say, we got through that year, it feels like an accomplishment, even if we're not completely through it yet. It's amazing in a way that as, as many of us have not been personally afflicted with COVID, given how everything went. So I just... Oh, yeah, totally. The reflection, it was definitely a reflective read. You couldn't help but reflect on the last year as you were reading it. So I was hoping we could talk for a moment about your fiction and what you're writing now (laughs) um, or what you're writing next or what you're planning to do. What's firing you up? (laughs) I actually started a new book today because it was release day for, you know, Year of the Nurse. And I was like, oh, gosh, I need a distraction so bad. (laughs) So here comes Dragon Shifters. (laughs) So yeah, I've been um, writing this series with a friend of mine, and I'm actually working on the eighth book in the series kind of totally. And it's just like paranormal romance involving dragon shifters, you know, very, very hot, very take charge men, but then also strong women. The first four books have um, a nurse protagonist. She's also Chinese American, as is my co-author. So those have been a delight, mostly because it's been super fun to write with somebody else to like kind of Voltron together into a writing team has been a great experience. And then I wrote, I kind of mentioned in the book some about how much I wrote last year. I actually wrote like 400,000 words of fiction last year, Karina. And that was because partially I had nothing else to do, but partially that was the only thing I had control of that I could do that could make myself feel better about myself at the time, really. You know, because obviously when you're the author, you're in control of the world that you're writing about. And so, yeah, I had a great time with that series. It's called, the first book in the series is called Dragon Called by uh, Kara Lockhart and Cassie Alexander. It's a, it's a fun read. If that happens to be at all your jam, I, I don't know that it will appeal to everybody who reads Year of the Nurse. It's kind of why I've got my name separate, Cassie versus Cassandra. But um, 
but I, I like those books. They're sexually wholesome. And I think it's nice to see people having functional relationships triumph over evil, not evil, evil, like not the banal fire hose of evil we had last year, evil, but you know, like <clears throat> villains and whatnot. It's just nice to get that feeling when things go right for somebody in a book, you know? So and it's been fun to write that too. Yeah, well, I did read that first book in the series, and I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Okay. <laughs> so I almost liked it as much as your Edie Spence series. I really loved the Edie Spence series. So Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned the therapeutic effect of writing. I wondered if there were other recommendations you would make to people that might still be struggling with the COVID pandemic, any resources that are now available that they should know about or things that you'd like to direct them to. Well, what's been the most useful for me is my therapist is a EMDR certified, which is the type of therapy that they do for combat vets who have PTSD. And, you know, when you read that, you might think, oh, only people who are in the military have PTSD or, you know, nobody was shooting at me. It's not the same thing. But you can actually have PTSD for a lot of different reasons. And her helping me to desensitize myself to the intrusive thoughts that I was having has made a world of difference in my ability to get through my day-to-day -day activities. So much so that I'm, you know, I think I'm going to be able to go back to work next month, which was not something that I even dreamed for the entire month of May. So I would encourage people who think that they have PTSD to not necessarily to self-diagnose, but not to self-exclude either, and to talk to a medical professional. And if you are found to have it, then to find somebody who can maybe do EMDR with you, it's really good. That's great. So is there a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had? <laughs> no, I just really appreciate you having on your show, Karina. This is kind of nice to have like a chat with a friend. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I like to offer my guests the floor as we prepare to wrap up. If there's just one thought or idea that you want to leave our audience with, something that you'd like them to take with them on their day. Yeah. So it's going to sound super strident, but Fox News is murdering people. And until we deplatform people who are anti-vax and anti-mask, we're going to be fighting COVID for a very long time. And there's no reason for that to be going on. So if you have an opportunity to change the channel, do so. Um, like, you know, if you're at a doctor's office or uh, on your military base or whatever, please change the channel to something slightly more sane and fight back against people who want to lie about COVID. It was awful. And the people who died deserve your honesty. So history is written by the survivors, you know, obviously, but um, a lot of people died who didn't have to. And um, us nurses remember that. So don't make us go through this again. Thanks. Well, thank you, Cassie. It's been my pleasure to read both read your book and also interview you today. Nice to connect again with a friend. Now, listeners, I'd like to invite all of you to act. It doesn't have to be huge. It could be as simple as getting a copy of The Year of the Nurse. It could also be as simple as sharing this podcast with a friend, with someone that you think would benefit from listening and from taking part in this conversation. To find suggestions, visit our action page on caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find causes and companies that we encourage you to support. And I invite you to join our community and join the conversation. You can follow us on social spaces at Care More Be Better or just send us an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I want to hear from you. 
Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.